0: Have you as a leader continuously focused on your weaknesses instead of your strengths? My guest today found hardship early in his career, but instead of focusing on his struggles, he built a system that changed his career. Today's guest is Chad Ostrowski, and he focused on his strengths to create the grid method, which was the starting point of the Teach Better team. Welcome back, everyone, to Aspire, the Leadership Development Podcast, where we will be discussing the visions, inspirations, and experiences from top educational leaders. My name is Joshua Stamper, and you can connect with me on Twitter or on Instagram at Joshua double underscore Stamper. Chad, thank you so much for joining us today. Yeah, I'm glad to be here, man. And Chad, as you know, the show is centered on leadership development, but before we dive into that topic, I want to hear about your role on the construction of the Teach Better team.
1: Yeah, so... um teach better team actually started with myself and and jeff gargus you know i was a middle level teacher i was doing the best i could in my my classroom i actually ended up having like the worst year of my entire life Mm. went through some struggles and in order to solve some of the problems i was having i realized something had to change right i had to be better for me i had to be better for my kids i had to be better for just every stakeholder involved in 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 my career and even my personal life right Mm. so after almost quitting teaching, I kind of re I sort of reinvented my classroom and my students kind of work at their own pace through what we call mastery grids. And through that, I started to see success and get amazing gains with my students. So people started asking me like, Hey, like, what are you doing in your classroom? Like, how are you doing? How are you getting that kid to work? He never works for me or this or that. Mm-hmm. With that success, sort of, I wanted to Way to share what I was doing with with other people, I wanted a way to share what I was doing so i I called on my friend uh, Jeff Gargas, who was doing who had started some, several businesses and had been doing some content marketing and, and things like that. And I met with him and I was like, hey man, I want to make an ebook. I want to explain this grid method thing that I'm doing in my classroom. I want to share this with other people because I'm literally getting stopped all the time to explain this. I want to be able to just go here, mm-hmm. like go to this site and here it is. So I told him this story about how it, you know, changed my classroom. It's changing my students' lives and you know how, how effective it was. And he looks at me in the face and and he goes, Dude, I don't think you're just gonna do an ebook that moment was sort of the synthesis of, I think there's something bigger here. Mm-hmm. And, and that started some additional conversations about, you know, like what else could we do with this? Could, could we do training on this? Could we show other people how to do it? Could we create online courses? Could we become a resource and replicate this for other teachers, schools, or districts? And um, that was like sort of the birth of the Teach Better team. Um, it wasn't called that yet uh, right. way back then, but um, that was sort of the birth of, of the idea that we could help and increase our impact in, you know, in education. That was really sort of where the, the whole thing started.
0: So how long were you teaching as you were constructing this Teach Better team?
1: I had been teaching five or six years before that, like when, when the grid method was created. And um, once it got created, after I had this idea, right, I was in the classroom for about a year or two after that. At first, it was just, hey, cool, I have a blog, I have a website, here's, a, here's an online course. I was doing like conferences and things like that, trying to get the word out. I didn't really know what it was going to turn into. I was just wanting to increase my impact, help as many teachers as possible. That was sort of like the goal. If I could help a teacher reach more students, I was going to be happy at the end of the day, right? Sure. It started to grow. I started to get more sort of uh, traction into it. A couple of schools brought us in for workshops, things like that. So I started to get a little bit busier, and as we all know, working in education is not a you know very time conscious thing. Right. So um, doing all these things at once became more and more taxing. But of course, taking the leap isn't possible without you know financial security. I remember this. This is like a sort of a pivotal moment. This it, it was, it was about a, two years after the discussion I just shared. We we had done a couple of workshops, and I, I got accepted to this conference, and this conference cost like two or 300 bucks. I don't know what the amount of money was. And we had generated some minor cat, like some minor money in the company. And I literally have Jeff and I have this text saved and it says, Hey, you know, we have like 300 bucks in our account and that's how much this conference is going to cost. Do you think we should go? And he's like, I don't know. Uh, should we? You, you tell me, are the right people going to be there? Are we going to have the right conversations? I was like, I, I think so. So I go to this conference, and, You know, I present, and it just happens that one of the, uh, the first districts we started working with on a large scale ended up being at that conference. Oh, wow. And so that, so that conference gave us just enough stability, so to speak, for me to take the leap and start, you know, commit to this full time. There's a comical conversation Jeff and I had after that, where he goes, Hey, just so you know, man, you got about, you know, six months to make this work. And I was like, Oh, we got six months. He goes, yeah, you got three months to make this work. (laughs) (laughs) And so like, it was a huge risk. It, It was not a safe or comfortable or any sort of like probably smart thing to do at the time, Mm -hmm. but it's something that five years later now it's, it's ended up, I don't know if it's paid off, but it's definitely allowed us to impact a lot of schools, districts, and, and kids through helping teachers teach better. So it was just me and Jeff at first, and we were kind of trucking along, uh, continuing to kind of build our, uh, our presence and and market ourselves and, and grow and, and interact and kind of prove our concept with schools and districts. And then we connected with Tiffany Ott, who was an amazing addition to the team. She started to run the grid method in her classroom and she was so passionate and so awesome. We sort of had to have her on the team and she was very sort of like, I can, I want to help you guys. So she sort of came in very organically, like just offering to kind of support and help in any way she could. And that sort of grew into more uh, official capacity. Mm -hmm. And then we connected with Ray Hewitt, who is from Illinois, who's just an amazing teacher. Um, We actually found her randomly sort of on Twitter, realized how amazing she was. And over time, we kind of brought her into the fold as well. And, you know, since the conception of the Teach Better team, we've we've branched out, you know, what started as just the grid method is now turned into, you know, we now do live trainings and online trainings on everything from universal design, standards-based grading, mastery learning, the Teach Better mindset. Basically like any big phrase in education, like we've done training on it now just because we brought these, these panel of amazing people together that's allowed us to, not only have expertise in house but have a network that can help us build additional expertise. So it, it's been a crazy ride. It's actually kind of cool to revisit it in on this podcast right now because like I don't think about that a lot. So it's nice to kind of reflect on on that journey and how far you know we've actually come.
0: Oh, and I love the story of really coming from something very small to seeing where you guys are now, writing a new book, you have a conference that's going to happen in November and you guys are yeah. on social media.
1: <laughs> we try, man. We try. Yeah. It's been uh it's been a great journey. We did just release a book. Um, you know, it's on Amazon and at Barnes and Noble through uh Dave Burgess Consulting or Dave Burgess Publishing, which is the whole, you know, the pirates themselves, you know, Teach Like a Pirate, lead Like a Pirate, Dave and Shelley, they're amazing people. Yes. We're also putting on the inaugural Teach Better Conference in November in Akron, Ohio. Uh, that's November 8th and 9th. A lot going on. I think you're gonna be hanging out with I us on podcasters row yes. uh, there. So we're excited about that. That's going to be a really cool, small, you know, like an intimate, like focused networking event, I think for some really amazing educators. I'm really excited about that. We wanted to create like an intimate, um, like small scale conference, nothing super crazy or huge, but like so that every speaker felt important so that every attendee feels like they're getting the most value possible. Mm -hmm. So far, I think we've done a good job of that. I'm hoping that you know, everyone that comes out, including yourself, like sort of feels that
0: I'm super excited. I'm going to be speaking on restorative practices for I two love different that. sessions. And then yeah, I'll definitely be on the podcasters row. Hopefully get some amazing interviews with all the different folks that are there. And yeah, I think you're totally spot on with the the intimate piece there because the venue is going to be really conducive to that. Chad, I want to go back to what you talked about. You said that you started working with the grid method and changing the aspect of your classroom because you were having a really tough time. And if you don't mind me asking, was that part of experiencing in the classroom that made you make that shift?
1: Yeah, so honestly, uh, I was a, a newer teacher. I had a successful first few years in the classroom. And my district did something called the district transformation, as they do air quotes around that. Mm-hmm. and then um so what they did is they basically rebranded all the middle schools and they made it open choice for students instead of like going to the nearest geographic school like right. now schools could students could go anywhere they wanted and it was open enrollment everywhere across the district so this was a high needs inner city 100 uh, economically disadvantaged district just to kind of paint the demographic picture sure. here so, I had been teaching in that environment. It, it, that didn't bother me at all. I was I was used to it. I had solid management in place. I had a successful first few years. So, like, I was confident as a teacher. So, I ended up at a brand new school after all these, like, sort of shuffling around of, of all the teachers and administrators and everything else uh, with two first-year principals. And they were, you know, they, they knew what they were doing in terms of education. Like I actually trusted both of these individuals in terms of their pedagogy, in terms of their ideas, but they hadn't been principals before. And the school just felt super chaotic because we were basically trying to build this brand new building. They were trying to like figure it out on the go. And I was trying to figure out how to work classroom in this new school. So I started to kind of get these problems and issues on a larger scale than I had before. Um, you know, student ownership was super low. I felt like everything was on me and like, they just, if they weren't learning, it was my fault. If they were misbehaving, it was my fault. It wasn't anything on them. Management things I had done successfully in the past weren't really working as well. Everything from that to like some of the instructional practices that have been really successful for me weren't. Working as well as they had in the past, Mm -hmm. so like it was just a really difficult year where like every day I was just going home like dreading going back. I basically knew that like something had to change. Either I need to quit teaching because I can't maintain this for another year, Mm -hmm. or I need to make some drastic changes. And that was really when sort of like this shift of like mastery learning kind of came about. So I started to think like, how can I increase ownership and give my students what they need so they can. I can I can reach them in a more effective way. So if I let them work at their own pace, I'm going to be meeting their needs more effectively and they're going to have to be more active in the learning process, so they have to be more engaged and the accountability is going to increase in my classroom. So like as I started to do these things, and this is like a year later, like after like I basically crumbled and rebuilt my classroom from the ground up at that yeah. point. And I started doing this and I realized, that, you know, When I let my students work at their own pace, they weren't as stressed because if you look at, and this is something I say during my workshops, right? You've seen an IEP. Every single person listening to this podcast has seen an IEP because, well, let's be honest, we're legally obligated to do that. The number one accommodation on most IEPs is extended time. I can think of like 100% of the IEPs I've ever seen number one accommodation is extended time. And if we look at what we do for our um, gifted and advanced learners and and gifted and talented learners or our highest students, the best thing we can do is let them sprint ahead or work ahead or compact the curriculum or grade advance, right? So there's one common thread in both of those things that we're doing for the top 10% and the bottom 10% of all of our students. And this is in schools across the country, so my question is, why don't we just do that for every student? So like, if we know that that's what the lowest and highest students need, let's, let's create a framework to allow every student to get more or less time based on their need, because then we can tackle the real issues like a third grade reading level in eighth grade or poor number uh, literacy or dyslexia or whatever the actual problems are. Mm-hmm. But a lot of times a student's not in their zone of proximal development. So like they can't even access the information that we're covering in the classroom, which means those accommodations aren't going to do anything because they can't even, there's no on ramp to the information we're trying to cover. Mm -hmm. So um, this was a huge shift for me. And that was, I that's, and it's continued to be a huge shift for teachers across the country as they, you know, they implement this and find success with it um, is um, they finally feel like they can reach the students in their classroom or they can uh, actually grow those students that they couldn't reach before. And it's because when you have every student in your class working at their own pace, you have 100% of your students working in their zone of proximal development so that they're primed and ready to grow from wherever they are in that process. So that was a huge shift. It's actually funny in terms of leadership, One of those principles is actually still there, and I I actually credit him a lot for the continued guidance he gave me and the trust he had in me to like do this crazy thing where I let my students work at my own pace. And I remember sitting down with him before the year, and uh, so this was something cool he actually did as a leader. Like after that year, he made over the summer he actually invited every single staff member out to lunch. Hmm. So like you got to schedule it. Um, it was super, like, you didn't have to do it, but if you want, I'll take you out to lunch and we can just chit and chat and, and talk about the year. And it was really great because I sat down with him and I talked about, you know, the challenges I was having and sort of just where things were at. And I was able to kind of really go like, Hey, I have this idea. What do you think? Mm-hmm. And he, but he was basically like, let's try it, man. Let's, you know, let's, uh, let's go for this. So I had the green light from him. And, and that was a big like weight off my shoulder because he was willing to let me experiment and, and try to make this new idea work. And if he would have shut that down during that lunch, or if he would have like not allowed me to do that, I probably wouldn't be on this podcast right yeah. now. So I know that the start and the chaos of that school had a lot to do with some of like those early growing pains as leaders. But I can also tell you that there were definitely positive aspects of that leadership as well.
0: So, Chad, I want to dive into the concept of educational leadership. When did you realize you were an educational leader?
1: (laughs) This is really interesting, actually. So I think a misconception is that titles make leaders and not actions, right? Mm -hmm. So I think a lot of teachers and educators feel like their impact is limited based on their title or their pay grade or their years of experience. But, um, I can tell you that, you know, I, I became a teacher through something called the Woodrow Wilson teaching Fellowship. So the, the first year of teaching was more like my second year of teaching. Mm-hmm. So like the fellowship actually get, got me my masters in education, and I got—I became an expert in things like PBL, inquiry-based learning, STEM education. I already had a degree in biology at the time, and I had my master's in, in secondary education. But that program really helped me sort of know what innovative education looks like and be able to experiment with those things before having my own full-on classroom. So when I stepped into education, my first year as an educator, I was the I was the head of the middle school science department in the school I was at. I was always looking for ways to like push the envelope and, and help as many people as possible. And I remember starkly having conversations my first year of teaching with other first year teachers. And I couldn't I couldn't wrap my own head around, like they were playing, they were like, oh, I just wanna stand to the radar so I don't get in trouble. Mm-hmm. Or I just wanna like hide over here and hope no one notices me. And that was just not what I wanted to do as a teacher. Like I wanted to, I felt like I knew what best practices were. Now, I'm, I'm not saying I knew everything. I, I want to be very clear. Like I had a lot to learn. But like, <laughs> like, I don't want to come across as like, I thought I knew everything. I was probably a little cockier than I should have been, if I'm being honest with myself, right, and reflective. But like, I, I knew what good practice was. I knew what engaged students looked like. I knew uh, I knew their research and the theory and how to apply it. And I felt like I had a handle on that. I really sort of like took to educational leadership from from really early on in my career, and even in those first couple of years, I went from there to being a, a team leader at my middle school, to being the the, the co-chair of the curriculum, the middle level curriculum of the district I was in you know, in subsequent years. So I don't think there was ever a year I, I officially had as a teacher where I didn't have some sort of leadership role. Mm-hmm. I don't really know if there was ever a point where I didn't view myself as a leader in some way in, in education. And I, but I, and I think teachers realizing that they're leaders is a really important thing because when you advocate for yourself as an educator, you, you get more out of this profession, right? Oh, so if sure. I, as a teacher, if I have a, as a teacher go, Oh, my principal, my, my AP, my curriculum director, my superintendent are doing all these things to me, but I'm refusing to participate in the process. I only have myself to blame at that point. If teachers take an active role and, and take those leadership positions, whether they're official or or not official, right? Because, I've never been to a staff meeting where the staff doesn't get to talk (laughs) or doesn't get to bring things up. But if you go to staff meetings, a lot of times people don't bring anything up. And those are all opportunities to be a leader. I think a lot of that prepared me for a lot of the coaching I now do. Um, I'm now consulting and, and helping districts and schools You know, implement full initiatives district wide. So I've gotten really, really comfortable, maybe not in a, in that, like an official capacity being a superintendent or curriculum director, but I'm actually helping lead some of those people in my current work, you know, as I work day to day with schools all over the country. So I think a lot of that was informed by me never being afraid to to take those leadership positions. Because whether you want to be or not, as an educator in any capacity, you lead kids every day. Like you, you have the capacity to be a leader. Any educator has that capacity. It's just a matter of if you want to take advantage of that or not, in my opinion.
0: Chad, when you were beginning your experience as a leader on the campus, what were some of the uh, most difficult skills for you to build as you're starting your leadership journey?
1: Building on people's strengths, I think, was was like my biggest like light bulb moment. Right. So like especially from a coaching standpoint, as a team leader or as a department chair, I'm often talking about you know, a new initiative or planning or something like that. And when I was working with teachers, you know, early on, it was more like, well, this is the right way. Why don't you do it this way? It was a very like top down approach. Right. And, and as I've had the opportunity to work and support everyone from teachers to administrators to superintendents in, in, in work, I found that like the best place you can start is with a person's strength let them know like, what they're doing well and how what I'm trying to get you to do can build on those things, right? Because I think we're all naturally defensive of, of our own practice. We're all, we, we all take pride in what we do and how we do it. And that was like a big thing I learned early on that I've carried with me throughout my entire career was, you know, everyone has something to offer and bring to the table. Mm -hmm. Like everyone you work with, you can learn something from. And if you open the conversation in terms of growth support, whether you want someone to do an initiative or improve their practice or implement the new standards or whatever those things are, when you start with their strengths first and and start with maybe some praise or some some acknowledgement of, of the respect, you create a much more conducive relationship. And that's that's been something that I've I've carried with me, and I think was a big shift in my leadership style, is sort of building on those strengths and leveraging people's strengths on my team. Cause now, you know, as CEO of of the Teach Better team. I mean, we're a very democratic team. Like we don't, like there's, it's not very top down at all. Like I learned something from Jeff, Ray or Tiffany almost every single day that I didn't know before. Mm -hmm. Um, And when we make decisions, it's very democratic. But I think one of the strengths of our team in terms of like a leadership perspective is I think we build on and let people thrive in their biggest area of strength. I think any leader can take that and apply that to their team or their staff or their district or their school it's about finding those people that have those strengths and letting them thrive in those strengths mm-hmm. while focusing on their areas of growth but if you never let someone like brag on their own themselves like they're they're going to just always be negative right yeah. so it's about just building on those positives first so you can so you can build people up
0: i want to talk about again early in your leadership career was was there a person that provided some impactful advice that really positively impacted your leadership skills
1: yeah. So I had a mentor early on, early on in my teaching career. This is actually the mentor I had during the, the fellowship I discussed mm-hmm. who ended up being a colleague then at the same district I, I ended up working at. And, and she used to tell me, you know, there's going to be a lot going on in the world and there's going to be a, a lot happening that you can't control. Something you should always focus on first is the things you can control. Mm-hmm. And like, that is something that has just like rung true to me. Uh, in almost any situation I've ever been in. Because it, a lot there's a lot going on in education, right? Whether it's the meeting that you just had a crappy time at or the new initiative that's being shoved down your throat or maybe you just got data back and it wasn't great. Or maybe like there's a fight with two of your students in the hall, like whatever just happened, right? You have to deal with. And if you focus on all of these things and let them encroach on your work or your leadership or your, your attitude, you're not going to have a great time. If you can focus on the things you can control and do your best at controlling those things and find your successes in those things, you can, you can create more of a balance for yourself. So like, even from a leadership standpoint, being very solution focused is something I think the entire Teach Better team is really good for. But that's like at the core of what the Teach Better mindset is, right? Mm -hmm. So like, I'm going to be better and focus on solutions rather than focus on problems. Because you go to any teacher's meeting, I'm sure you know this, I'm sure you've been in these meetings, like anyone can complain till the cows come home. Like literally, you can complain about anything. And you can get a group of any people in any career or position and they will complain until forever. There's always a thousand complaints, but it only takes one person to go, hey, I understand that this stinks. I understand that we're in a bad situation. What can we do to improve it? Because I don't want to talk about why. So like an analogy I often like to bring up is, you know, when you come up to a burning building, you can argue about what started the fire or you could put the fire up right? So like, let's put the fire out first, let's solve the problem. And then we can in retrospect, talk about why this problem occurred. Because if we both sit here talking about why this house is on fire, it's going to burn down. (laughs) So and that's something I think that I've carried in my leadership style. That's something I've carried through in the way I, I coach people. Because another thing I've noticed is when you're coaching and leading people, if you don't make excuses, if you don't let people make excuses, they eventually stop making them. Excuses only breed and grow in an environment that allows it, right? So if, if someone says an excuse and you just always go, yeah, that's great. What are we going to do about it? Because I can talk about these 50 reasons why this is happening like uh, right now. Like, How are we going to solve this issue right here? I know you have 35 kids in your class but I can't do anything about that right now. How can we better support those 35 kids as opposed to complaining that you have 35 kids yeah. because, or whatever the problem is, right? Yep. Yep. So I think that's a really sort of like foundational thing to a, a lot of the, you know, what I do on a day-to-day basis. Mm-hmm.
0: So Jed, as you consult with schools around the country, what is the largest barrier to the success of leaders and how do we combat those barriers?
1: Oh man, I, you know what? So it's really interesting because I, I never held it like a, an official school administrative position. Mm-hmm. So I, I mean, I was like co of the curriculum, but I was still a teacher in the classroom, right? Mm-hmm. So I, I was never a principal. I was never a superintendent or anything like that. Now I literally work with curriculum directors and superintendents and principals more. I work with teachers as well. I in workshops, Absolutely but I actually interact with principals and administrators more than I ever have in my entire career. And something that I don't think a lot of teachers realize is that most principals and administrators just want to support and help their staff. I think that barrier alone for leadership is such a huge hurdle. Just getting your staff to like be aware that you care about them and want them to succeed. And it's not like an us versus you Mm -hmm. mentality. I I think that's a huge barrier, you know, and I think, you know, state evaluations and walkthroughs and things like that. I think some of those things can create like this culture of you're always evaluating me. You're not supporting me. And no matter how many times you say, I'm here trying to make you better. I'm here supporting you. It's like they never actually believe it. So it's like creates this us versus them mentality. And I see that even when I'm trying, you know, when we're doing the grid method or teach further or something else in a school, like we'll do follow-up visits. And it takes so much time for me to get a teacher to realize like, it's going to be okay. I'm just here to support and help you. That's it, period, full stop. I kind of see that as like this like self-created barrier for a lot of leaders just trying to realize because so many t- administrators I talk to, when I'm talking about presenting to their staff or or working with their staff, they get like super defensive and they're like, I just want to make sure I'm not overwhelming them. I just want to make sure that they feel that this is building on the work that we're doing. But if you talk to that person's staff Even though like I sat here and just had a conversation with this administrator that cares about their staff, that wants them to succeed and is fully sort of seeing the full picture, a lot of times like some of the staff just still don't see that. I feel like that's a huge barrier. So instead of us all being like, hey guys, we're here for kids and we're all here to help kids, no matter what i'm doing like it's to that goal it's to that end until that's there and that trust is there it, i think that's a huge barrier to growth or in, in any capacity
0: so the teach better team has so many projects right now you know you have the twitter chat and you're on facebook live all the time and then of course you have the teach better podcast and then of course our our big news here that you've already talked about is the book that just came out so for those who haven't had the opportunity to read teach better Can you just give a quick synopsis to our aspiring leaders?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So Teach Better um, is about the mindset of constantly improving. Right? Uh, I think a lot of leaders are going to resonate with that because to be a successful leader, you always have to be looking for the next area that you can grow or improve yourself, your practice, or your school or your district, right? Um, so what the teach better mindset is, is really just th- that pursuit of better every single day. Uh, and it doesn't necessarily have to be the same thing every day, but how am I going to be better today than I was yesterday, and better tomorrow than I was today? Whether that's, managing or coaching or supporting your staff or any aspect of your life or teaching or education, you can be a little bit better every day. You can do something a little bit better. And when we constantly pursue these small instances of better, they build up and add up to great changes and great improvements in our instruction, in our lives, in our classrooms. So what this book actually does is it basically... It even harps on some of the stories that I told, uh, you know, today, it is nothing if not a raw view of failure and success and everything in between. Um, So there's a lot of stories of just like growth, Um, but it's uh, more importantly, it's built and compared and paired with practical strategies that you can use in your classroom or your school to make your teachers or make yourself better. So like a lot of times books, tend to be one or the other. They're like super motivational or they're super strategic and dry and academic, right? So with this book, I feel like we, we married both of those ideas. So we motivate you and inspire you hopefully with you know stories and real anecdotes and things like that. And then we, we show you how to improve those things. So whether it's grading, uh, management, just mindset or motivation, like all of those things are in this book. It's, it was a team effort. There's stories of failure and success from every single one of us. And that was really important to us as a team. I want every single reader to open up this book and go, I've been there. I want to see how they got out of that pit so I can do it too. Because it's really easy as a leader or as a, you know, when, when you're sharing your thoughts to like use once again, that top down approach, right. And go, well, I know these, this information. But I think gaining the trust of who you're talking to and gaining the trust of your audience through being vulnerable is really, really important. So that's a lot of where this book comes from. I'm happy to say it's available on Amazon and at Barnes & Noble. It's doing very well. We've got some great reviews and feedback so far, and I hope that continues. So um, I'm happy with how it's been doing.
0: So in closing, for those starting their leadership journey, what advice do you have for them?
1: Be okay with listening and learning. Um, I think a lot of times, and I'm guilty of this too, and it's something I try to get better at every single day. It is absolutely okay not to step in and change everything because you need to, to feel like you're making that impact. You know, um, Sometimes the best thing you can do is come in, observe, listen, and communicate to see where the your team or your staff or your school or your district is. I've I've heard a lot about new tactics, things like listening tours, right? Like, so if I'm coming into a brand new building, like I'm going to go and talk to all my staff members from the janitor to the cafeteria worker, to the, to the, every teacher on my staff, And say, you know, what do you think? What 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 could be better? What can I do to support you? Where are you at in your journey? Because more often than not, I see people try to come in, and they—I don't know if it's like an ego thing or if it's like a just like I have to feel like I'm doing something big, like Mm -hmm. off the bat. But like a lot of times, it's like, okay, I'm a leader now. I have to do all of these things tomorrow. Right. And if you have a staff or a team that's seen four or five leaders in the past 7 years <laughs> they're like they're probably in this cycle of okay well I'm going to play this game I'm not going to do anything with fidelity I'm going to wait till this guy's gone and or woman's gone and and then move on with my life but I think if you sit back listen and make sure that your team is heard and you build on those strengths and make them feel like they're part of that discussion. And then enter into the conversation where your strengths are as well. That would be a, a good tip for me because that, that's going to gain a lot of trust. And that's that's that has been what some of the most successful leaders I've worked with have done.
0: Chad, how can our listeners connect with you on social media? So, you can follow the Teach Better team at Teach Better
1: Team on Twitter, Instagram, or, you know, we're on Facebook as well. You can follow me at Chad Ostrowski. That's on Twitter, or I'm on
0: on Facebook uh, as well. Chad, thank you so much for being on the program. And I cannot wait to see you in November.
1: I can't wait to see you either, man. Thanks a lot for your time. I appreciate it.